We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Freedom Gateway from Foundations of Freedom. The Freedom Gateway is a truly secure and private platform for collaboration and communication. It's uncancelable. While bringing together mission-driven organizations, freedom-loving individuals, activists, and engaged citizens across the globe. Here at the Unity Project, we use the Freedom Gateway to escape big tech censorship, leverage secure communications, and document sharing, and so much more. To learn more about the Freedom Gateway and its myriad of safe and secure features to connect, go to theunityproject.org slash FOF. I wanted to introduce uh, Dennis Prager has uh, joined us. Uh, I'm very excited about that. I believe this is Dennis's first uh, Twitter space ever. So um, pretty excited to hear from him as well. And Dennis, welcome to the, to the spaces. And I know you're new to this stuff. So if you have questions, um, on the bottom left, there's a, a button that says Mike. Yeah, uh, I got it. Do go. you hear me? You hear me? We, we, hear we can now hear you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. It's an honor to be with you all. Thanks, Dennis. I think the last, the last statements made, if I may call you by first names, uh, by Aaron, is the, is the key. I, I am more a macro than a micro man on these matters. And so I, I am, in other words, I see I preoccupy myself with the big picture. There has never been a threat to a free speech in American history like there is now. Uh, as, I, as I've often noted, my field of study was somewhat uh, obscure. I, when I was at the graduate school at Columbia, I majored in communist affairs. There were seven out of thousands of students, seven majored in communist affairs. I learned Russian. I went to communist countries regularly. And I was certain that I was learning the enemy and that uh, it never occurred to me that everything I was studying would be applicable to our country. And everything that I studied in the way the Soviets took over Russia and communists took over Eastern Europe, I, I see, uh, and, and I, I, am, I took a vow when I began radio 40 years ago, I can't believe it's that long, uh, never to exaggerate because you lose your credibility over time. So when I say that we are moving in that direction, uh, I mean it literally. And I would only add to the, uh, what was the uh, censor, the, what was it, the government censor complex? industrial complex. Uh, yeah, it... well, I would add, I would add, unfortunately, I would add a censorship industrial judicial 100 uh, yeah. percent there, there you go. the, the judicial's involved in this right. well right. sure sure Hi, hey dennis it's laura sextra um under the unity project i know it doesn't show my name good to speak with you again um, and i think that you're you know aaron and everyone we're all spot on on this in terms of this being the biggest threat 
I know, Aaron, this is something that we talk about. And Dennis, I've heard you speak about it as it relates to the, the medical system and our inability to function in any uh, informed consent because they're, they're handcuffing doctors' ability to even engage in an ethical doctor-patient relationship. Well, uh, here in California, you're uh, a doctor who speaks out uh, and says that uh, at, at the early stages of COVID, it might be advisable because you can't get hurt by it to take hydroxychloroquine with zinc or, or ivermectin can lose his license. That's right. Yeah, what's, what's strange and what I've seen, um, and, and the free speech is kind of like a, there's two elements of it. Well, there's free speech, which is the typical, you know, everybody walking down the street, you know, real world free speech. And somehow free speech on the Internet has become compartmentalized, whereas it's just not free anymore. It's it's effectively controlled by a few, you know, monolith companies that, uh, you know, are essentially never held accountable for anything. And because of that. The entire narrative of the world, of course, because most speech has moved to the Internet. I mean, we, we all use it. I, I think the standards are, what, 73.7% of Americans use the Internet to communicate. So free speech is really under fire in the, in the, the larger scale because the, you, know, you can't be held accountable virtually anymore for what you say. And the companies decide what is heard. I mean, it's really a crazy situation, which, of course, I think it affects us all. Um, Dennis, you, you, Dennis, I'm sure Aaron has as well. I, you've been censored with, with big tech and so forth. Can you talk to us about what all is going on with that? Well, this began, we, we, we were sort of the canary in the mine, uh, Prager you, because this is years ago already. And the wall street journal editorialized about it three times in a year. It, so, uh, it was because we were, as I say, not the first, but one the first uh, perhaps of 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 a big uh, a big site on the internet because it is a big site and uh, we we were just noticing we were being shadow banned but first before that uh, there was a, a, an outright uh, censorship in, in in the form of youtube which is owned by google uh, placing some of our videos indeed a hundred of our videos at some at any given point on the restricted list meaning if you had any filter against pornography and violence you could not watch our videos or those videos that they put on the on that list same at schools and at libraries and uh, we we i i went to the senate and testified to to the credit of senator cruz he had he had this session and to bring both levity and seriousness at the same time, he asked, and by the way, one can actually watch this. It is on YouTube, this session, uh, where Senator Cruz asks the representative from Google, who was you know, sitting like 20 feet from me, said, sir, well, why did you, uh, why did you put Mr. Prager's uh, video on the Ten Commandments? <laughs> Ten Commandments on, on the... I remember that. Yeah, you do? Do you, you remember? Yeah, I, 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 you remember what I do, you know, fighting this stuff. I watch absolutely everything, all of the trials, all of the, I read everything, all the cases. I mean, I've read uh, Missouri versus Biden, Aaron. I mean, 
anything to do with it, we watch. And, and absolutely, uh, Ten Commandments was ridiculous. Right. They so, also went right, after the Constitution. So they, they don't know the punchline. So he, he, uh, he asks the Google man, so why, why did you... Uh, why did you place Mr. Prager's video on the Ten Commandments on the restricted list? And and the man totally seriously answered him. And as I say, well, you've seen it, so you know it's on it's on YouTube to this day. He said because it mentioned murder. Yep, totally. So I, it was when, so ridiculous when I, when it was my turn to speak. I said, okay, so we'll issue a Google friendly Nine Commandments. Oh my. It, it's it's incredible when you just well. talk about a subject, just to talk about a subject that they don't like and and that they restrict it. And the reality is, is we all know that that's not acting in good faith. Like there's just no way that that fits within good faith. And unfortunately, it, it's been you know a monumental task to try and stop it um, because you know the concern is is the courts are more concerned about status quo than they are the interests of the public at these at this point. Well, I think I think it's worse. I think that there's a combination uh, among judges. There's a combination of two traits. One is ideological. Many of them are simply leftists, and that that they're in that sense they 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 approach the level of a Soviet judge. Uh, but the other is cowardice. I think that uh, that is a very, very uh, important factor to understanding what's going on in the country generally, and certainly among many judges, including judges who are not leftists. And we also have to yeah. acknowledge that there are now a considerable number of Americans who don't really believe in free speech. No one will actually say that. They will, they will say, oh, yeah, of course, free speech, First Amendment, but, and then they'll enter a, a caveat, um, but there's this big threat, and it's an existential threat. It usually starts with some sort of danger. And by the way, this is always how censorship proceeds throughout history, right? Okay, we believe in, in you know, free speech. We believe people should have different ideas, but there's a crisis, and or or, or but yeah, but but uh, well, what they what forty five percent of American college students say, I believe in free speech, but not for hate speech. Right. They don't understand that that means they don't believe in free speech. That's right. Um, it's 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 basically saying I believe in free speech, except for speech that I strongly disagree with. Exactly. Which is precisely what the first amendment is for the first amendment wouldn't be necessary to protect speech that everyone finds congenial the first amendment is, is there to protect speech that some people don't like and some people really don't like um and the only the only caveats uh, allowable are things that have been determined not to be speech so obscenity um pornography uh, these things um, these these very very narrowly tailored exceptions. The the most typical exception would be a direct threat of physical harm to another person. Um, and but outside of those, the First Amendment applies even to to vile speech, even to um, speech that most decent people would find uh, offensive. Um, but but the alternative of course, is empowering some people to control the speech of other people. Because the question always becomes, okay, if we're going to permit any form of censorship, who decides? Who's, who's given the ultimate authority uh, to decide what is true and what is not true? Or um, 
you know, in this case, uh, some of these new, very slippery terms that are introduced, um, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, which uh, I've stopped using. And I, I encourage all Americans to stop using the term disinformation. Talk about true and false and then make arguments as to what you believe to be true. Um, but malinformation, for example, is defined as true speech that is inconvenient, true speech that is not contextualized in a way that advances a certain narrative. Um, so censorship is always about control. It's about some and, people controlling other people. And Aaron, and all these, this, this fact, these fact checkers who have somehow become the arbiter of language, right? I know we've seen that heavily with COVID and this, this concept of, you know, uh, mis and disinformation, which I agree with you. I hate that terminology, but you know, Jason, you said that, that you're seeing people being censored for what they're saying. We're experiencing at the unity project being censored without even saying anything or saying, um, you know, I, I, I've used this example before where we actually took an excerpt off of the California.gov website from a bill. And we were told that we were going to be permanently banned from um, Instagram because of mis or disinformation. And so it's beyond just this idea of censoring people's speech. It's censoring their, their mere presence for what they stand for. Well, I just want to inject this because, you know, a lot of people, I, and, and for those that don't necessarily know me, um, I go way back. Uh, you know, everybody is thinking that this all started like 2016. I got slaughtered in 2013, 2014. And back then it was about economics. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about ideology because they hadn't gotten that far yet. It was a it was a big shift that they took in the 2014, 2015 um, stage. Back then they called it problematic content, at least on Facebook. And what they meant and, and the exact quote is. And what we mean by problematic content is content that we don't necessarily – that doesn't necessarily violate our community's standards, but we think it's a problem anyhow. Well, that's that's not in good faith restricting content. Now, does it mean that it's necessarily liable you know, in terms of a cause of action? No. They can still restrict speech, and they're, they're allowed to do so. But when they do so in an unlawful manner, you should be able to hold them accountable. But unfortunately – like you said, the, this judicial warfare that we're dealing with, we just can't. We can't hold them accountable because we can't get a day in court to even address it. Um, and that and that's what we've seen just over and over again. That's it. That's that's it in a nutshell. That's correct. It's it's a very big threat. And of course, and just so you know, people realize, and, and this is, you know, depressing news. Um, you know, Dennis, I, I believe that you're aware, Aaron, maybe you're aware, and some of the people in here, we have taken two runs to the Supreme Court, two runs. It has taken five years, and we have said the most basic elements of Section 230, which is that the, the language, the actual text has not been applied as it's written. The courts legislated from the bench. And we have brought this down to the most simplified elements, which is that 230C1 does not protect conduct, but they believed it has since day one, and that's wrong. And secondly, and I think that this would apply tremendously to PragerU, is, is that nobody has considered what is, is formally called the intelligible principle. It's the general provision by which all of their conduct should 
apply. And that means that they should be a good Samaritan. Well, courts have only applied that in one case. And yet here we are in the Supreme Court yet again with the simplest answer to fix this mess. And they just denied us again. It's mind-boggling that they won't address this when we gave them the solution. They simply won't do it. Strange. I don't. I don't know that it's mind-boggling. I think it's it's by design. Look at look at what has been happening. One thing I'd like to, to your... add to this conversation, just to clarify, I think the scope of what's going on, which is hard to wrap your head around for most Americans, um, and, and I think what what has censorship is nothing new. <laughs> censorship problems are have been around for a while. Um, I think what's new, what has developed since around 2016 at least, is just the breadth and the scope of how this is operating um, at, at a massive scale. So when, you know, I like Schellenberger's term censorship industrial complex, because now censorship itself is an industry in the most literal sense of that term. It's a career path. It's, uh, it, it, it has, it has, institutions that have been established to engage in that work. So if you look at CISA's partners, that, that agency I mentioned earlier, that's at the center of a lot of this, CISA partnered with not only a couple of very powerful nonprofits uh, that are well-funded, they partnered with Stanford University, something called the Stanford Internet Observatory. They partnered with another uh, I'll call it censorship. They call it misinformation um, outfit at the University of Washington. So we have public and private universities involved. We have training programs that train ambitious, smart college students and prepare them for this pipeline. This is uh, the, the misinformation industry, or this, more accurately, the censorship industry, is now a career path. It's a desirable career path for many young people. Um, I remember giving a talk with Scott Atlas at Stanford. Smart, bright, young students were worried about that information that was floating around out there about COVID and what, what can we do about it and how can we, how can we stop it? And uh, these students seem to have no awareness that trying to control the flow of information in the way that they were proposing would violate the First Amendment of the United States if the U.S. government was doing it, and even if it was only private entities doing it, would spell the end of scientific, the scientific enterprise because science and censorship are totally incompatible. Science cannot make progress if you try to fixate any hypothesis or any conclusion or any consensus at a certain time as unassailable as something that can never be questioned. Progress in science is made when people ask new questions, when they challenge established opinions, when they, uh, when they, in the face of new evidence, revise what we think we know um, and try to refine it. And that requires open-ended debate. That requires conjecture and refutation and discussion and, and an ongoing debate. And that can't happen in a climate of censorship. Well, they say the First Amendment is is to consider more tongues is better than less, so to speak. I'm sure. Uh, so, Dennis, quick question for you. When, 
I, I know that um, PragerU went and took their case, you know, up up the chain, um, as many of us have, and sort of hit a dead end. What do you see the future, you know, with obviously with you, PragerU, um, you know, in terms of the real world fight? You know, what what is what is your hopes for the future? Well, I'm uh, I'm always a bit uh, ambivalent about the word hope <laughs> because I don't think about what I hope for. Uh, I, I have a pessimistic view of the human race, uh, partially because. <laughs> Partially because I know history, partially because I know theology. Uh, anybody steeped uh, in the biblical worldview, which is by far the wisest worldview ever devised, knows that human nature is not particularly good. And as a Jew, I, I know that the most advanced civilization in Europe uh, went from, uh, from Bach and Beethoven to Auschwitz. So uh, I don't have a great deal of hope. I only, but I don't operate on hope. I operate on only one question. What do I have to do? And, uh, my, my method, there are many methods. My method is to appeal to as many uh, people, uh, and as big a number as possible. So when I know that we have a billion views a year and that 65% are under 35 years of age. That, so to speak, gives me some hope. But uh, I, I got to tell you, uh, this is an, this not global warming is the existential threat uh, to civilization. Because Wait. if America, if America crumbles, it, 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 it will be a dark age that will make the so-called dark ages look bright. So you uh, you asked me a question. <laughs> I didn't expect this answer, uh, yes. but uh, uh, I, again, I will say though that whether I have hope or not is irrelevant to me. I fight. Uh, my my the analogy I always use is Normandy Beach. You know, did did uh, the, the, the did the uh, guys who went on the first wave on Omaha Beach. Uh, when they peed in their pants, were, did they have hope? People with hope don't pee in their pants. Uh, so, but they but they knew what they had to do, and uh, the the crisis is 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 that severe that I use all of these analogies. But the the ease, I'll tell you what's been been shocking: the ease with which the freest country in history has uh, half of its population has contempt for freedom that that's really blown my mind covid brought that out uh i mean you know they they laugh at the at the catholic church and its treatment of galileo uh i, I gotta say he 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 fared better than than some doctors have uh so um this is this is this is the biggest battle since the civil war i, I would have to agree with you i think this is Far more dangerous than anybody realizes right now. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, we realize it, but that then then half the country realizes. Half this country does realize it. That I mean, that that's the irony, and yet that's not enough. When you own almost nothing, they own virtually everything. 
uh, media, uh, Hollywood, uh, uh, education, all of it. The money, the money. They even own the money. They literally can just print more, and we continue to lose money through inflation, and they own that too. And it, it, it's mind-boggling. Go ahead, Laura. Yeah, I'm sorry. What was that? Yeah, no, it's absolutely correct. Yes, you're right. But uh, uh, look, and, and then there's the, the other question, uh, which my wife, uh, whom you've spoken to a lot, is uh, uh, who's a lawyer. Uh, and, and follows this intensely and knows more than I do about the particulars. Uh, with, uh, with, what was I going to say? The um, one moment, because this is um, it's, it's significant. Uh, so you were you were talking. Oh yes, uh, uh, the 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 un, un ineffable issue unexpressible issue of which my wife raises more than I do of uh, do they cheat <laughs> of course they do <laughs> I All mean right. that's so, kind of a given well no I mean cheat in elections I, I, don't, I don't mean cheat in general uh, I mean if, if they do then it, it, it even adds more of a challenge to us to prevail because if we do win elections we we get to appoint judges although again even with judges i mean it, that the supreme court won't take anything that you bring up is is uh it's not a function of ideology i think it's a function of of, of lack of courage people well, people don't want to be hated by the new york times it, it, it is it is just it's it's mind-boggling to me the the fear that people have of of being uh, besmirched uh, by the dominant media I, I i come back to religion i have more fear of god than of the new york times but i i think i'm an outlier in that regard you know i, th I think a lot of us have had to embrace the fact that we are going to be ridiculed i mean that's that is what it takes these days is that in order to be a fighter in this game, you need to understand. I mean, I've had it happen to me all day long. All of the trolls came out of the woodwork because the petition was ignored. And you're, and you're right. You know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm at the point now. I'm not even sure if the Supreme Court, who just denied our petition for writ, which, I mean, it makes no sense because the circumstances are this. Obviously, the Internet's a massive problem for everyone. Section 230 is currently being considered in Gonzalez versus Google. So they're already considering this. We brought them a case that cleaned it up. It gave them the solution. We have a circuit court conflict. We have literally competing circuits between the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit. So we have that, and then we had a constitutional issue, meaning we had every single element that a Supreme Court is the only court that could resolve, and they denied it nonetheless. And the, and the strangest part is, it's not partisan, but what concerns me the most about this entire field, and like, and you're right, is if the people that are cheating also control the rules, we have no chance at fixing this. And and I and I'm so grateful that that Aaron is is you know involved in this case that's not in these courts that are completely doomed. Um, I, I'm at of the point now of actually making complaints against the the federal court judges because. It, it's such a lousy job that they're doing 
you have to wonder how how you can even argue that it's not intentional, that it's not prejudiced against us, because they just don't even answer the questions anymore. And, and that's where we're at in this. And, and I'm at the point now where we are so corrupt as a nation. You know, it's not a matter of if we just are. We know. I mean, it's so blatant. I'm not even 100 percent sure that the Supreme Court justices even saw my case because it is entirely plausible that some of these leftist attorneys that act as clerks may not have even shown them. That's right. That's entirely possible that they never even saw my case. That's and right. that's concerning because if they just mark it, yep, we sent it up for consideration. Yep, they didn't want to hear it. So I'm going to start FOIA requesting every single thing to do with my case to see if this was even done. I'm not sure at this point, but that's that's the concern that you know I, I I think that we all face here, and and I agree with you, Dennis. Free speech, and and you're right. Your your wife and I talk all the time. Susan and I talk all the time. Free speech is absolutely the most dangerous thing that we're dealing with right at the moment, and and it is mainly because so many people agree that we should get rid of it. It's unbelievable how many people would argue that. Oh, my feelings are hurt. Therefore, you should not be able to say it. Maybe you should go to jail. That's ridiculous. You know, so, real world Jason, harm can, is different than words. Can you guys hear me now? Yes, we can. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I was having some technical difficulties there. Uh, you know, here's the, the other issue. I, I, I was having this conversation with, with a younger person the other day, and I believe that, that kids coming out of um, high school and college are really the first generation that is fully, fully indoctrinated. And, you know, we're talking about things like they're going to school and they're learning that hate speech is something that they need to be concerned and not only concerned about, terrified and because they believe they can be harmed by this quote unquote hate speech. Um, and then when they get into the real world, it's reaffirmed. They go to these, these uh, colleges or even once they get into the workforce, it's reaffirmed by society right now that uh, everything that they're learning in school is something that is actually reality. So, so it's this continued extension of what they're experiencing in school. And it, to me, that is, is incredibly concerning that in, in, in the academic environment, we are indoctrinating these children at, at all levels, whether it's free speech, whether it's the gender, radical gender ideology, whether it's critical race theory, this diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff that's happening. Um, we are, we are teaching children that a, they should not critically think and B that they need to be terrified by things like in this case that we're talking about hate speech. And I know Dennis, you obviously have, um, a big impact on, the younger generation with PragerU, which I think you've done an amazing job, but I'm, but I'm concerned, deeply concerned about what's happening in mainstream academics uh, right now. Well, I, I have been uh, pushing for years. Uh, the only, I, I think there are solutions since I gave you such a pessimistic statement earlier. Let me say this. I, there are solutions and my, my, my belief is disengagement. I mean, if people don't buy Bud Light, uh, you will have an impact. 
If people don't visit Disney World, you will have an impact. If people take their kids out of school and homeschool them, uh, it would uh, overnight scare the living daylights out of the teachers unions who were interested in leftism and money. I don't know which first, but those are their only two interests. They have no interest in, in helping children any more than communists were interested in helping workers. All of these left-wing groups use groups. Uh, uh, black group, black agencies uh, care about blacks as much as I care about Sri Lankans, and probably less, uh, because I don't harm Sri Lankans, they harm blacks. Uh, 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 teachers, uh, most teachers don't care about the kids. They wouldn't have uh, had two years away. Sweden... Uh, apparently Swedish teachers care infinitely more about children than American teachers do. So uh, uh, th that's the answer. It, it, <laughs> people disengage. If I had children now, I would either send them to a, a very religious school. And though I'm a religious Jew, I would happily send them to a, re a, a religious Christian school if that were the only one available. But they would not go to a regular private or a regular public school. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there I don't people probably don't know, but right now here in California, we actually have a bill that's being proposed that will require teachers every 2 years to go through training on how to create a a classroom that is inclusive of the this radical gender ideology. And so children really have no chance in this mainstream education system. But I will say, I did read a statistic, and, and don't quote me on this number, um, but I, I believe something like 40% were seeing disenrollment to um, LAUSD, which at one point was the largest school district in the country. I, I, again, that vacillates between New York and uh, LA, which one has the, the largest school district. But no doubt these schools are operating as intended. They are producing a fully indoctrinated generation. And um, I agree. I think we have to have some type of alternative to mainstream education in this country. I, I think a really good point, and this, this goes even to PragerU again, um, and it's even how I, I got involved. When, when we were on the COVID lockdowns, um, and I know I've told Susan this, I'm not sure I told Dennis this, but in the midst of that, we started to homeschool our son, had no plans on doing that, really didn't have the time for it and all that stuff, but decided, okay, we're going to homeschool. And I, you know, I wanted to incentivize my son to just basically do his own thing. So what I did was I actually offered him a dollar for every Prager University video he watched. And... The point of that was is that I wanted them to come back and because it wasn't just simply watch it. It was to come back and give me essentially like a, a short oral report on each video. And the the point was there is is that when I know that they you know they demonize you. It, it's the strangest yeah. thing. They demonize you as saying horrible things. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, I would pay my son, not knowing exactly what video he's gonna do, just go watch it because I know right. you you produce such great stuff. But and you know, it's, it's, it's just a shame. It, what's fascinating, D Dennis, you met my daughter. I don't, I'm not sure if you, you remember her. Oh, um, I remember both of you very well. <laughs> you know, she said to me the other day, it, something that, that somewhat broke my heart. She said, Mom, uh, she came home and she, she had a friend that, at school that said, 
Florida is terrible. They're banning people from even understanding anything about women. And she goes, mom, I feel like I'm leading a double life because obviously she's been raised in a very conservative household with traditional values. We spend an incredible amount of time having conversations. And um, I imagine that, that children, much like your son, Jason, much like a lot of the kids that are, that are engaging in the content from PragerU, do feel like they're leading a double life. Yeah, oftentimes my, my son is talking about how the school is doing, you know, X and he understands why because of my my uh, morals and ethics. And it, the best I can do is just let him identify it. If we can teach our children that the problem's not going to stop, but how to identify it and, and sort of, you know, isolate it so that they don't necessarily agree with it. That way they can get through the schools. I want to the, propose... the, go, go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. It's fine. Go ahead. Um, so what do we, what do we do? <laughs> I, I think many listeners are maybe asking that question. Okay. You know, I, I, I don't have the resources or the ability or the standing to fight this thing in the courts. I don't have a microphone like the speakers on this space. Um, I'm just an ordinary person, you know, trying to do the best for myself and my family. What, what can I do? I think there's a lot that people can do. One of the things that happens with censorship is people start self-censoring. They internalize the censorship rules, so to speak. Um, and totalitarian systems count on that. You know, eventually the secret police and the surveillance and the concentration camps are less and less needed because people have internalized the totalitarian regimes, uh, ideology, their, their rules, their strictures. And, um, and th that is the true form of imprisonment, right? When, when the questions no longer occur to you, you've ceased asking them, um, then, then you're really enslaved to, to an ideology. So try to notice when you're self-censoring and, uh, you know, take a risk, stick your neck out in, you know, in that, conversation, even if it's just among some coworkers or, you know, people standing around the water cooler, the family, family gathering or whatever, say what you think, you know, challenge what seems like uh, conventional thinking that no one wants to question if you think it's wrong. And you might find other people coming out of the woodworks and say, hey, thanks. Thanks for speaking up. I'm with you. Right. And so Cowardice is contagious, but courage is also contagious. So those small acts of courage are important. Basically, the censorship regime will stand and fall based on what ordinary Americans want. Right? The, courts, exactly right. the courts, for better or worse, are responsive to the court of public opinion. And if public opinion turns strongly against censorship, all these censorship cases in the courts will receive very careful scrutiny from judges of various ideological persuasions. Um, that's just a reality. That's just, that's just a fact. Um, so those, I, I think those small ordinary acts of avoiding self-censorship are important. The second thing I want to suggest to people, and it's kind of been alluded to in this conversation is I'm going to pull a page out of the playbook of, uh, the, the Czech dissidents under Soviet communism. There were, there were individuals in the former Czechoslovakia, later Czech Republic, that, um, you know, tried to basically uh, um, 
live in, in ways that were different from what they were being told to live. The most famous individual there was a man named Vaclav Havel, who became the first president of the Czech Republic after the fall of uh, Soviet communism in the, the Eastern Bloc states. But there was another Vaclav, a guy named Vaclav Benda, who was also part of that resistance movement. And he had this notion, he called it the parallel polis. The parallel polis was, was these small scale uh, new institutions of civil society, of, uh, of communications, of media, of education, of um, arts and culture. And by small scale, I mean, you know, a few people getting together and just trying to do something different. And basically what he argued is if the state target, targeted any one or another of these individuals, a totalitarian state could destroy it. But if we have so many of these things that the state with its finite resources can't go stamp each and every one of them out, we're eventually going to win. Um, and so do something small. I mean, at the, at the level of your, just your in, circle of intimate friends or family, you know, start a book club, um, you know, devise you know, new ways to educate yourself. PragerU is a perfect example of a parallel polis institution, right? And you can make use of that. Hey, let's have a PragerU discussion group, right? We watch a couple of videos um, and get together once a week, once a month and discuss them, right? And, and, you know, make a commitment to share them with a couple of people, you know, every month. And, you know, try to expand our circle of conversation. I mean, there's, there's a million ways that you could do these things. So look at the talents that you have, look at the interests that you have, and think of ways on a very, very small scale level to try to begin living differently, right? Maybe I'm not going to get my news from this source. Maybe I'm going to, you know, um, going to find a new way to, to get and share information with, with other people. Uh, and, you know, I think this can be very powerful. It's, it seems, it may seem, you know, I'm going to start a book club. Okay, that's kind of trivial in the context of a vast, you know, government censorship regime. Uh, but it's really not, actually. It's really, that, that's really where the most meaningful and most powerful forms of resistance have to begin. Agreed. That's, that, that's entirely accurate. And I just want to throw in one caveat. Uh, my wife and I had a lunch recently with a, a an actor and his wife, and uh, he's a, I won't say his name for his sake, uh, and you'll understand why in a moment. Uh, in fact, he's, he, he's the star of a recent film. Not, not, ex, not very well known, but he, he makes a, a living and he's a, an excellent actor. To, so I asked him a question that I, I asked, I've always asked people, because I, I ask people personal questions, because I'm not good at chit-chat. And I, so I said, do you have close friends? And I've always asked this of people, because a lot of people don't have close friends. They have pals and acquaintances. And uh, they said, oh, yeah, of course we do. Both, both the wife and he said they're, they're both uh, in their 40s. Uh, so she's in her 30s, actually. He, he's early 40s. And uh, I said, oh, that's great. I'm happy to hear that. Do you, uh, 
you're, so you're, my definition of a friend is someone you could tell everything to. So I, I ask them if they, if they say to their friends everything, because that's my definition of a friend, someone you can be open with. And the, uh, I said, so for example, uh, do, I assume you, you talk about your conservative views. I said, oh no, none of them know we're conservative. So here is a couple living in Southern California uh, and working in Hollywood. Not a single one of their closest friends knows that they're conservative. Th- that uh, th- they, in other words, so I said, and what if you said you were? I said, we would, we would probably lose most of them. Uh, so when I said that there's a caveat here, uh, I pay, the only price I pay for my outspokenness is that I am regularly ridiculed and attacked uh, on the internet. Uh, but that actually only emboldens me because it means I'm having an effect. So I, I don't, I don't give a damn and I make a fine living saying what I say. Uh, but there are people who will lose everything. He will, he would not have another movie, uh, if, if he came out. Uh, so we, we have to understand you're, uh, I want them to all start these book clubs. I think that was a great idea. And by the way, I'm actually suggestive that people start PragerU video clubs that, or, or something analogous. It's a great idea. And it, it is an act of resistance that is uh, innocuous sounding. Uh, uh, but, uh, I'll give you one more example, which happens all the time. So I get this question from young people and from their parents. If I, if I say what I believe, if my kid says what he or she believes uh, in high school, it will hurt their chances. The teacher will give them a lower grade. Uh, they won't get recommendations uh, and they won't end up in a, in, a, in, a, in a good college. Good meaning prestigious. They're not good. Those prestigious colleges stink. But, but, and I went to one. So I, uh, this is not sour grapes. And uh, so my answer has been this from uh, for years when I'm asked on the radio this. What do I tell my daughter uh, about writing what she thinks on a paper or in a test on a test? I said, look, I can't tell you, obviously, what to tell your daughter. And I appreciate the dilemma. I can only say this. If you compromise what you believe for a grade in high school, when will you stop compromising? And that, that has touched a lot of people, that, that question. And I say that to kids. So you'll, you're compromising on what you believe now. When will you stop? There will always be a reason to compromise about what you believe. Oh, yeah. Uh, the compromise is all, always yeah. the issue. If we continue to compromise, we lose. Right. And, and it's funny because you reminded me of a story I want to – just a quick story I want to tell people. Because you're talking about the ramifications of speaking out, right? I've I've basically always worked for myself, so I was never put in that circumstance in most certain scenarios. I mean, obviously the online stuff that I'm wrong, I'm an idiot, blah blah blah. Th- those are those are simple. But the question is about the real world. How has it ever affected us? And it actually happened to me once, like like severely. And strange and strangely enough, and this is actually the first time I'm ever going to say this publicly is that we i have a boat you know it's like a 37 foot sea ray right and i keep it down in in chesapeake you know on uh, in maryland and i went to the 
you know, marina that I wanted to keep it at. And I went in and I basically said, hey, you know, do you have slips available? And they said, yeah. And this is a company, that, a billion-dollar company. It's owned by a company called Safe Harbor, right? First time I've ever really had this happen. And I said, you know, I wanted to rent a slip. And they said, yeah, we have four available. And we said, okay, great. And we went, and I just wanted to make sure that I had a slip before I went and actually bought the boat. So I went and bought the boat, and I come back, and I said, okay, well, we need the slip. And they say, uh, our slips are full. And I said, well, you just had four of them two days ago. Oh, they filled up. And I was mind blown. I was like, really? How did, how did they get filled up that quick? I mean, there has to be something else. Well, we watched, and sure enough, the slips never got filled. They were empty for the entire summer. And after about a month, month and a half of them sitting open, I went back to them and I said, uh, you know, can't we get a slip? And, and they've been sitting open. They said, uh, no, you know, they're filled. And I said, they're not filled. I'm looking at the board. And I'm, you have to understand, I'm looking at their board and there's nothing in the spaces. And I'm going, they're not rented. And do you know what they said to me? They actually said out loud, they said, we don't believe that you would fit in uh, with our community. Yeah. Now, you have to realize I've already kept my boat at this marina before Safe Harbor owned it, before these new managers took over. And they said I wouldn't fit in with their community. I almost wanted to look at them and say to them, is it because I'm black? Which, of course, <laughs> I'm not black. Right. But it would make the point incredibly well. But sure enough, I mean, even the higher level, they said no, too. And the only thing I can think it was that they looked into my political leanings and, you know, obviously right. my, my public persona. And they just didn't think that I would fit at the marina anymore. Of course. And and this happens all the time. There, To your point, Jason, Dennis, Aaron, there, there's ramifications. My, my daughter, this is a true story. This happened less than a, maybe a month and a half ago. My daughter, I went to school, her school to talk to her AP government teacher, which I believe is probably one of the most important classes we can teach. And her principal felt compelled to get out of his office, walk across the campus, and he did not realize that my daughter was standing behind him when the principal said to the government teacher that I, her mother, was, um, I'm going to censor this, was an effing B-I-T-C-H and a scumbag of the earth because I do what I do with, with the Unity Project. She was absolutely devastated, called me. And I explained to her, I said, honey, don't be upset. This means that, that we are winning. This means that I am making an impact. But for her, that was very upsetting. Having to sit through a class where she feels like her principal and her teacher um, just used that vulgar language directed at her mother. It's horrible, some of the treatment. And I, and I believe we should expand. Uh, and actually, Dennis, I'm curious your position on that. Do you think that the discriminatory classes should expand to consider ideology and politics? Oh, that's an interesting. So you can't discriminate on the basis. Well, first of all, I believe that every single one of these uh, discriminatory laws should be dropped. It turns out that I was wrong almost all of my life, and Barry Goldwater was right about the original 
uh, civil rights legislation because I, I was a kid at the time and I was so repulsed as ev- most everybody is obviously a black can't sit at a lunch counter or get on a bus is ridiculous uh, and, and evil, not just ridiculous. So it, it made so much sense uh, to have a ban on discrimination on the basis of race. However, uh, Goldwater was right. And Goldwater, by the way, was a co-founder of the NAACP in Arizona, to just to give his civil rights record. Yet uh, he he understood that he understood that the left will always never stop. So it's on race now, but it, it is now uh, gender identity. You cannot discriminate on the basis of that combination of Title Nine. And, and those laws. So when when you say not discriminate on the basis of, it, it sounds good, uh, but uh, they will find other reasons uh, to, to figure out a way not to have us, uh, how, 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 how do you prove it in, in any event? You could prove you're black. How, how do you prove that you were discriminated on the, on the basis of conservative? Maybe they, you know, I, I think that those that's a matter of the facts of a court. It, it's not to say that it can't be proven or it can be proven. It's just the fact of should it be allowed or should it actually be included in a discriminatory class? I, I, I believe it I, is I, in some in, cases in a, for rentals. Yeah. In, in a, you're, you're, well, all right. So I'll give you another one. How, how would this apply? Adam Carolla and I made a movie a few years ago, No Safe Spaces. It's a terrific movie, and it's not a terrific movie because uh, I'm, uh, I'm the co-star. It's just a terrific movie. It's and, a terrific uh, movie. I will second that. <laughs> thank you. And and uh, Netflix would not distribute it. It would not. They would not a- allow it on their platform, which is devastating to any movie. And they even said why, because Dennis Prager is in it. And wow. and so uh, so w- would they. Would would that would Netflix then be forced uh, to uh, to comply with with having the movie on? I mean, I, I would like that theoretically. I don't. I'm ambivalent about it because I know how these things get twisted when they start out. Well, as I said, I would like to. I would like. I would do the opposite. I would. I would adopt Calvin Coolidge's view that the fewer laws passed, the better. Uh, well. But, it- there's an interesting element there, Dennis. In the case of Netflix, it is a it is a pub, you know private company that is um, putting out content. They they're not required to you know they, they can't be compelled to hold your speech even if they don't like you. But I'm talking about more in the circumstances of like, and I believe this actually is even the case in, in Maryland. We're we're sort of looking into it now because they kind of picked on the wrong people, you know, wrong guy. Um, I have a tendency to go litigation ways um but discriminatory classes for rentals you know or property where they're regularly held to the public um based on the the classes actually expand in certain states i know they do in in maryland um to include gender identity gender period um the political uh viewpoint uh is one of them in maryland I, i was surprised to see that and it's not the normal discriminatory classes, but this is in the terms of rentals because otherwise, you know, say for example, you want to rent a jet ski, and they go, "Well, we're not going to rent you a jet ski because you're Dennis Prager." Well, that's 
they're you know offering it to the public but not you that's different than hosting the content in the movie that you produced on their site because they of course choose all of the movies that have to do with their you know and of course you don't have a gay scene in it you don't have um where the 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 woman takes the dominant role and the men you know you can always find one of those elements in like every movie that's on netflix nowadays and it, i mean i don't care like it's you know the way i watch it's like okay fine whatever unless it completely diverts from the story it's like why does that matter like why did you you know have to put that in the movie that's where it starts to get aggravating yeah sorry i went kind of off topic there but (laughs) okay it it, it, but so i i'm trying to understand here netflix would be able to under your understanding of such a law against discrimination on the basis of ideology or or philosophy netflix would be allowed to have done that to our movie but the the boating uh, company uh, would 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 not be allowed is that it's correct because, it's because it's a rental slip a rental property rental anything uh, applies to discriminatory classes right because it's it's offering it to the public to be able to rent. It's just like um, fair housing. And, and, and what about and what about a professor who doesn't have tenure and comes out conservative, and they don't give him tenure and he's let go? I think that that's that's horrible. Um, no, I don't no, know no, exactly no. I know you do. I'm asking: Would your law against discrimination based on philosophy apply there? Well, I I think it would apply in most of the circumstances where the current discriminatory classes exist but you're but you're suggesting and, and i'm just well, want to they, clarify it, it, you're suggesting no but that's not true because netflix if netflix banned a movie because a black was a star in it uh that they, they would they would be violating civil rights legislation well so, it's it's just like a uh what a, a by right state where they can sue you you know they can um let you go for any reason that's totally legal right up until they say it's because you're one of the discriminatory classes it's a matter of being able to prove that, but once they can prove it, yeah, sure. But but for example, if you were let go because you were conservative, that's not fair. I mean that that's essentially the same thing, and I think that's what a lot of people look at this and they go. And I'm not saying that I have a a perfect scenario for this. Um, I mean I, I'm just sort of thinking about it out loud here. But but I think that you know the discriminatory classes should include. It's almost like it's blanket discrimination. People shouldn't discriminate. Period. I don't. I don't like. It doesn't even matter what the category is. You should just take everybody for what they are, who they are, and and and, and sort of you know how they are. Decided on that. Right. Actually, uh, I, Jason, yeah. I, I can uh, touch upon that. Um, that actually it applies in, in employment cases, um, <clears throat> federally and in uh, Massachusetts, uh, pertaining to political association. Yeah. Dennis, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, 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 that, that's, that's quite all right. I, uh, look, I've come to the, the point where I so treasure freedom more than a, any other issue right now, and maybe ever, that uh, I, I have said on the radio, if you don't want me in your country club because I'm a Jew, you should be allowed not to have me in your country club because you're an anti-Semitic asshole. Uh, freedom allows people to be assholes. And, and, and so it's a very, very difficult issue. I agree. Uh, it, too, 
to the extent that the, what happens then when you have people that gang up and they don't want you to exist in society. Well, and, and the problem is when they start to unify, they can push you right out of society. Along that same line, uh, not not as it relates to free speech, but we're talking about freedom and sovereignty. Um, I've often asked, and we and we we started talking about this at the beginning of this Twitter Spaces. I've often asked, what is a justifiable um, event that people should go along with being locked in their own homes, being locked in their communities, not able to move about freely within their community? I can't think of a single thing. I tend to agree with you, uh, Dennis. I, I'm so much a believer in personal sovereignty that uh, I, I just can't think of a single thing in this country that um, we should create an, necessarily create another law um, and that we would you know, go through what we went through for the last three years, locking down this country. So. I would agree that we just don't need any more laws. I think we actually need to start getting rid of laws just in general, just start like getting them off the books because I mean, there, you ever notice that like we just keep making new and more laws and, and inevitably our freedoms just keep disappearing, but yet they never seem to go away. Well, every time you create a law, you create a criminal. So true. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably, yep. that that's exactly what happens. I mean, imagine what will. Oh, have you? Uh, I'm not sure if the panel's read it. Have you read this new TikTok ban restrict act? Like uh, what? How bad this is going to get? It's going to be pretty terrifying. Dennis, have you had an opportunity to look? Uh, at I it? didn't read it, but it's terrifying. Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is consider everything that was said in that, and take the word foreign. And switch it with domestic, mm -hmm. and then you can understand what will be done. Because, all, you know, just like they claimed that uh, that Trump was a Russian agent, they will, you know, because, of course, they, there's no FOIA. There's no accountability. They can just claim that you're involved with a foreign adversary, and all of a sudden you just own nothing. You can go to jail. You can, you know, pay fine. I mean, it's crazy what this thing will do. And what um, and Laura and I were, were, were talking about this earlier, and, and, and actually Susan and I were talking about this yesterday. If you combine with what is going on with the Restrict Act, this foreign terrorism, domestic terrorism issue, calling Catholics terror, you know, the FBI was calling Catholics terrorism. And then we're watching that the one case that they took for Section 230 stuff was a terrorism case and recommending terrorist content. Like specifically domestic terrorism stuff. If you know, if you're, you know, critically thinking about this, you wonder why are all these government agencies all looking at domestic terrorism? And that's because I think that domestic terrorism is their final, you know, checkmate move is to take us all down. If you say anything against the government, you're a domestic terrorist. You must be involved with a foreign agent, and all of a sudden you find yourself in jail and all your assets are seized. I think that that may be where we're heading, and I think you're right, Dennis, that when you see all, all the tea leaves, it's kind of like, I think this is coming. I, I don't think I don't even know if it's stoppable. Sure. Well, and, it's and gotten it's to the point where a lot of Americans are uh, do seriously think about secession 
I mean, I'll tell you this. If if Florida seceded, I would move there. Well, I think that overall we're looking at this, whether it's this, this Restrict Act or the World Health Organization trying to uh, control the United States, you know, having the United States seed over the response in a pandemic to um, the, the World Health, or excuse me, the United Nations now saying that we should decriminalize um, sex between an adult and a child. We're, we're continually edging closer and closer to these um, large, broad sweeping um, policies rather than this, this concept of, of personal sovereignty. It, to me, that's terrifying. It's like we're moving to an age of barbarism. Like legitimately, I mean, it's we, we're losing our civ civility, we're losing our morals, we're losing our ethics. It's just crazy across the board. That's right. Yeah, look, uh, since again, I, I see things in a biblical terms, the we we are not in a post Judeo Christian society, we are in a pre Judeo Christian society. The San Jose Sharks NHL team tweeted out uh, their massive support for uh, LGBT uh, pride, pride evenings where when the players skate, they have LGBT pride colors uh, taped on their hockey sticks, for example, and on their, uh, on their jerseys during the, during the pregame warmups. And they tweeted out uh, that we're crazy. Uh, this, is, this is just white supremacist stuff that we believe that uh, sex gender is, non, is binary. After all, and then they cited four ancient indigenous people groups that uh, did not have binary sexual identity. Of course, all those groups had human sacrifice, uh, but they are now the ideal, uh, uh, the pre-Judeo-Christian. Uh, I say Judeo-Christian because Judaism is older than Christianity. So we're talking about the veneration of ideologies and systems that predate uh, th 3,200 years ago are now regarded as more enlightened on these matters than our society. What's strange is, is that it, it's as if the lack of control, like self-control, has become, you know, the, the ideal, whereas, you know, modesty and ethics and, and self-control have I've kind of, like, lost, you know, that that, that, that is now you know, ostracized and, and, and ridiculed. Like, how can you believe in a God? I mean, how, how can you be like a good person? And, you know, and, and like, and you were saying about sacrifice, you know, I don't want to get too, you know, too conspiratorial here, but I think that's happening too. Like, I mean, legitimately, I think there's some really crazy stuff going on. And, uh, and unfortunately it's just because we're losing our ethics and morals. Well, look, the idea that uh, when we ridicule 
clitoridectomies in, in, uh, among some many Muslims, not all by any means, that they, uh, that they surgically remove a girl's clitoris. That is regarded as, as uh, terrible. But we removing girls' breasts who say they're boys, that's, that's fine. So that, that, yeah. that, that's, we, we are going backwards at a great speed. Right. Under, under the guise of um, it's what the child, the child is expressing what their needs are, which is the most ridiculous statement. I know we've all heard the analogy, you know, if my four-year-old wants to be a unicorn, clearly they're not going to be a unicorn or my, my four-year-old still believes in Santa Claus um, when they grow up. They're, they're clearly not going to become a unicorn. And, and when you're 30, you still don't believe in Santa Claus. Um, so everything that these, these parents and this system is justifying it based on that we are supporting children by allowing children to express their, their needs. It's absolutely illogical. I don't know about you, but I still believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, you know, Laura, it, that's the thing is, is that we all remember being children. You know, I remember being, well, I don't know if I necessarily remember being four, which is even scarier because it's like, so you're telling me a four-year-old can make this decision. I don't even remember those days. Like that's so long ago, but that they can make a decision that is supposedly an informed decision. Because, of course, we're, this is all supposed to be about informed consent. How can you consider a child to be informed consent? And, and the thing is, is that it's not about the the decision. It's not about the child at all. It's about the abuse that these, these you know, adults are, are uh, you know, placing upon their children. And what I don't understand is why isn't the government, like, why aren't they moving in? I mean, this this should be considered criminal, right? Because it it is physically harming children. Um, you know, it's it's a, a destabilized uh, you know family living condition. Why isn't you know protective services moving in on this? And you know, but like right. you said, Dennis, at the very beginning of this, it's it's the government too. It's these courts. Right. It's it's a, a complete collapse of the entire system as well as the mentalities of individuals. We're well, seeing it everywhere. The, the Child Protective Services has become an extension of the government. They're, it's simply a tool um, it's a breaking up. that's being used against parents. Um, yeah, you're rubber banding a bit, Dennis. Yeah, no kidding. Can I... I'll yeah, go if you leave, we'll 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 bring it back up. I know. Oh, uh, now it's clear. Aaron now it's clear. It, like... it it heard it heard my threat oh, and it and it uh, buckled. <laughs> Aaron, we haven't heard from you in a bit. I know Aaron's got some some specific feelings about this, and is yeah. For those look, of you I mean... who don't know, Doctor Aaron, if I could just say, for those of you who don't know, Doctor Aaron Cariotti, his background is phenomenal. He's a psychiatrist. He's a medical doctor and ran medical ethics for UCI for over 15 years. So I would, you know, he, he is a foremost expert in this. So in the current climate, um, speaking out will come at a cost, just riffing on Dennis's story about the actor. Um, you know, I lost my job. 
at the university where I was, as Laura mentioned, director of the medical ethics program for many years and a full professor in the School of Medicine for uh, and for advocating for informed consent. Um, and, you know, not everyone should uh, put their head on the chopping block. That actor probably would be, you know, prudent to be careful to protect his career. Otherwise, he's not going to be able to survive. He's not going to be able to have an impact. Sorry, I don't know what's going on. My thing keeps yeah. automatically muting me, Jason. I don't know if there's... If I That's really strange. No, I, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the, the spaces are texting, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, anyway, you know, that that guy may need to act to protect his career, but um, but there's other contexts in which I think we have to be daring and be willing to suffer for the sake of our convictions. And, you know, that requires careful discernment. Uh, and careful look at our responsibilities and, you know, what can and can't be accomplished in any given context. Uh, but courage, uh, courage is important in this regard. What's happening with gender ideology is really, you know, begins with a radical rejection of any form of dependence. That, that by the way, was Karl Marx's philosophical starting point. Um, you know, he said for man to be free, you know, we can't be dependent on anyone. He has to be, he has to self-create himself. His whole program was a process of uh, recreating ourselves by recreating society entirely from the bottom up. And um, it began with a radical rejection of dependence, including dependence on God. And gender ideology does the same thing. There's no such thing as human nature. There's no such thing as inherent limitation. Uh, there's no such thing as male and female. Um, you know, we are whatever we create ourselves to be. And truth is literally whatever we make it to be. It's not something out there to be discovered. It's not something to conform our lives or ourselves to. Um, it's something that each of us create on our own. Um, so a, a radical relativism that is really a recipe for chaos is at the origin of, of gender ideology. And of course, it's doing a lot of harm to young people, uh, enormous harm. It's going to collapse. The only thing presenting, uh, preventing the um, medical interventions from collapsing is the statute of limitations in most states on medical malpractice is 10 years. And a lot of the regret after transitioning comes only, uh, you know, after several years down the road. And so there just aren't very many cases of early regret where they're going after these gender clinics. Uh, but there are some. There's a case now in California. There are others. So it's going to collapse under the weight of lawsuits of children who have been harmed. And, you know, in a few few years, look back and ask the entirely reasonable questions of, you know, what was I railroaded into? And I was too young to make a, a life-altering decision like this. Um, and it a Aaron, why were, you, why were you fired? What, 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 what reasoning did they use? So they they allegedly fired me because I did not take the vaccine. But at the time, I had already filed the lawsuit in federal court challenging the vaccine mandate, the vaccine mandate of the university on constitutional grounds. And you know, before waiting for that the judge to make a ruling in my case, uh, they swiftly moved to to fire me. So they 
in my view, they fired me because I challenged them publicly. I challenged that policy. In their view, they fired me for alleged noncompliance with their vaccine mandate. Did any other uh, me- member of the faculty come in, uh, out in your defense? Some did. Um, Joseph Ladapa, who's now Surgeon General of Florida, at the time was a professor in the School of Medicine at UCLA. He wrote a declaration in my case supporting me. There was a handful of other faculty members that supported me with written declarations uh, in, in my lawsuit filing. Others have come out and supported me. Vinay Prasad at UCSF uh, has, has supported me publicly on Twitter. Um, so there were there were some, but um, you know, many people that you think are your friends in a crisis turn out not to be, and and some people who you who you didn't realize were friends surprise you. So it's been a really interesting learning experience. And and I will say we we are in strong support of Aaron. He is our chief of medical ethics at the Unity Project, and we're proud of the work that he has done. I, I highly suggest people follow what what he has done over the last three years. Um, not only in terms of speaking out um, in the books that he's written, but probably more importantly, the, the legal work that he is engaged in to change what's happening in this country. Yeah, very impressive. Uh, Tin, you got a question? Yes. Uh, good evening, Jason and James and Dennis and Arid. I, I actually was uh, wondering if you had heard about the doctrine of Perens Patriae. Friends Patri. It's it's a basically the legal doctrine that was established that allows for the state to intervene in any matter of informed consent, and it looks like a very apt um, angle to attack this issue where the state or you know actors other than the parents are involved in both transitioning and other matters related to uh, forcing or taking control where the parents are not incapacitated in any manner that would cause them to not have the ability to make, uh, you know, considerate decisions about their child's welfare. I'm not familiar with that term. Dennis uh, or Laura, are you guys familiar with that? The, uh, uh, I can give you again a macro view of this uh, issue. Uh, Every cult And every tyranny, the first thing they do, aside from confiscate guns, uh, is remove parental authority. In Germany, it was uh, Hitler and the Nazi party were above your parents. And in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party was above your parents. They made a national hero in Stalin's time of a boy, public Morozov, who uh, reportedly snitched on his parents for keeping grain in the Ukraine during the Stalin starvation of 5 million Ukrainians. And the, uh, he was a, became a national hero. There is actually a postage stamp of that boy uh, because your, your duty is to the party, not to your parents. And again, that's part of the Sovietization of the United States uh, at, at this point. Sure. I mean, but this is, this goes back to what's happening to children in school. But, you know, California has actually for quite some time engaged in 
legislation that strips away parents' rights. A lot of people don't know that for almost two decades in the state of California, after the age of 12, parents cannot get access to their children's medical records without the consent of the minor, which is, is completely illogical. Um, but that's just one example of of the erosion of what's happened um, in, in parents' rights and in inserting the government in the place of the parental role, right? We're now seeing this edicts in major school districts where they're saying that children, um, if they say that they're transgender, that it's to be withheld from the parents. And something that, that I just discovered recently is SB 1266, which was signed uh, by Governor Brown in 2013 under the California Department of Education, they in 2013 and 14, they were talking about keeping secret from the parents any child that is quote unquote tra uh, transgender. That's almost a decade ago. So what I, what I was actually getting at is that that doctrine is the foundational basis for, uh, which has never been passed at the constitutional level, or there's no amendment that actually allows for this parental control. So basically, parents' rights are protected under the 10th Amendment. They are secure. And there is no um, legal basis for the states to expand or remove parental rights because there is nothing that exists outside of this doctrine and, and a smattering of case law at the federal level. And so that, but I guess at the end, one of my point is that you, you'd be able to actually deconstruct and take down these legislative actions because they have no constitutional foundation in, in when, when they remove parents' rights. Well, the, <laughs> that's perspective, yes. But as we've seen with these courts, they don't necessarily do what they're supposed to do. Um, you know, because obviously uh, Tin, just so you all know, Tin is very, very smart. Um, a lot of the things he says, I, I, I'm very interested to understand them. Um, but if you go back to just basic common law, uh, a lot of people do not know. Uh, and, and I know Tin and James and, and Monica and a, and a couple others in here remember when I did this. I filed pro se, right? So separate of my case against uh, Facebook and separate of the case against the United States, I filed a common law affidavit, uh, basically asking for remedy by necessity. And essentially, I'm demanding the court as a servant to me as we, the people, as their master, to do the damn job. And instead of even addressing it or anything, they filed it inappropriately in my statutory lawsuit against Facebook. It was pro se. It was completely separate. So the, the point of that is, is that you know, the courts, the lawyers, everybody, they're not doing their jobs anymore. So even though in theory, what you're saying is is really good to know, the question is whether or not we can actually get it done. Mm -hmm. um, another good example being is, is that, you know, although the, the Facebook case just got dumped by the Supreme Court for the second time, um, my case against the United States, which is still out there, it has been over a year now and we haven't even gotten past a motion to dismiss yet they haven't even ruled on that yet they just stall it because there's no real mechanism um you know they, like there's no real time period for which a, a judge has to rule on a motion to dismiss so 
you know, at about a year since the briefing schedule is about when we're going to have to file a writ of mandamus, you know, in the circuit court above them to get them to do their job. That's the problem we have is, is that, and it's something I kind of want to address. And if, if anybody has any other ideas, how do we deal with the judicial system? Like, I mean, one of the things that I'm intending to do now is I file complaints against federal judges, which of course is terrifying. Like, I mean, it's, it, you know, I don't want to end up in jail, but at the, at the same time as if they're in that kind of position, you know, and their life tenured, how do we get them to do their job properly or how do we get them out? And I, I don't, does anybody know of any situation where a judge outside of like full-blown corruption, they got, they got nailed for something in a criminal matter. Does anybody know anybody that civilly removed the judge enforceable? Tim, do you have, a, do you have anything? Yeah, I've, I've been digging into this very deeply recently, um, trying to look at building uh, small artificial intelligence models so that you can effectively do what you're saying for the purposes of accountability. What, what I'm looking at is I found cases where the judge has violated due process and then the filing has to go against them in their official and unofficial capacity, but it also goes against their judicial board as well. Right, and, and it goes to actually... the, the chief justice, I believe, of that court. And I mean, I've, I've been reading up on the process and so forth, and you have to send it to like the chief justice of that circuit or that, you know, the federal judges, uh, you know, the overseer of that of that court. And then it goes into their judicial review and so forth. And, and there are processes through there, but I don't think anybody's ever done it. I'm, I'm kind of scared to do it, but, but, but continue if you have more. Well, the, the concept is that if you build these systems, which have the ability to, to scrape through all the documents and relative information, according to your case, that you can actually um, find in the library of materials that you've built, um, the, the precepts and arguments required. Okay, so then, so then you're, at, you're, you're arguing at a different level because you're using all Supreme Court precedent, all state precedent, and all federal precedent that you've brought into the model to search and then this you know helps you to build your documents so then from that point going forward you can actually build the submissions and then you know have your legal counsel validate that those submissions so there's a i'm looking at a whole different way in our opportunity about how to approach these extremely and overwhelmingly complicated um argumentation situations like in other words you you are not going to come forward with the wrong argument in in these under these conditions because you can actually validate it based on algorithm that's interesting to be able to aggregate more content than a human being could do because i mean even what i figured out with what's going on with the internet is reading literally everything it's it's years worth of work whereas an ai could do that in an instant and i think because this the strange thing about the judiciary complaints is is that you can't you can't argue that you got it that they got it wrong like because they're allowed to get it wrong um but the question is is that when they supersede just being wrong into the willful negligence issue which of course what the, that's what the affidavits stood for is is that we flat told them separate of my entire case it's a violation of my due process rights whereby what most people don't recognize about the internet is 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 that when 
any entity, doesn't matter private, public, whatever, if they just if they take your life, liberty, or property, you are entitled to seek remedy. You are entitled to your day in court under your due process rights. That said, I have been denied all remedy. I haven't gotten a single oral argument. I have basically been unheard the whole way up. And it's it's really, you know, as we said to them, it's like, hey, look, um, in the affidavit, and, and it's, you know, I'm sort of summarizing this, but we said that Facebook took my property and the courts have did not deny me remedy. I am entitled to remedy. And that's what serves as the the evidence of willful neglect where I think I, I might actually have them. But but I'd like to uh, and Tim, we, we've already connected, but um, I, I want to actually explore that a little bit further because I'm about to make this argument. So if I just happen to, uh, you know, disappear, everybody knows why. But I mean, it has to be done. Somebody's got to take this. You know, and, and and I think a lot of people know here I have a lot of nerves, so I, I just sort of just keep pushing forward. So we're going to try that um, and see if it works, because, of course, if we could get – could you imagine if we can get a federal court justice, like life tenure, right, that was Article Three appointed removed, that would send a shockwave across the entire judicial system. And I think that – you know, we talk about like what would fix this, what would fix this. What I think that that would be outside of massive arrests of, of these individuals. I think that that might change the game because judges would realize that their positions are not as strong as they thought. I think it might have a major impact. Yeah, I, well, a lot of this stuff is bleeding edge, you know, like research, and I've been and I've actually been experimenting with building the systems and actually having them generate. Uh, in the last week, I was able to actually get a a marginal system was briefly running, um, but it didn't. It, it wasn't able to get it to complete to to full execution. In other words, it wasn't able to get it to the point where I could do the queries. But I got what it, what it, what the to me, which is a mind blowing part, is that a large number of the open source libraries for the legal component already exist. The Python libraries, which is all the coding that you need to get in between, exist. So when you assemble all of these pieces and components together, you can have your own system, which will allow you to do the querying and get the feedback to help you generate the precise argumentation that is required. Because 99% of this is about presenting precision arguments and then having precision counter arguments when the argumentation is, is ongoing. And so that's the, that's the game changer. That's what I'm, so I'm trying to figure that out because I mean, I got to solve that in my own life. And matter of fact, I think it could solve a lot of problems for other people in, in the, out in, you know, in the end. Go for it, James. Hey, sorry, I'm going to have some background noise, but I think you're, what you guys are talking about is why I believe that the Missouri v. Biden case has the potential to be the most important free speech case probably in our history. I mean, potentially, this could end with the government being ordered to stop doing all these activities with all of social media, because we all know if we understand the agency principles uh, behind what the government's allowed to do, for example, in any other, uh, you know, let's call it a drug case or a firearms case or whatever, you know, the agent that whether they be undercover or a confidential human source, they have to respect your rights. And the sheer fact is right now, 
these people and social media are somehow outside of that system until this case gets decided. So this will go a long way, I think, to being able, if you get the government out of the game, so to speak, right, you get them out of playing on, on one team, you, you'll potentially free the internet enough that we can then rely on things like, you know, Prager University to, to pull the weight that it should be pulling without government interference. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, if we thanks can... for that, James. Uh, the, the other thing I'll say about Missouri v. Biden and the reason that it's important is that previous free speech cases and censorship, specifically censorship cases, usually had to do with a very small handful of instances of censorship. So you would have one newspaper or one publisher censoring one source or censoring one or a handful of articles or, uh, you know, censoring a particular book or a particular author, which was bad enough. But the rulings came down to, you know, a very circumscribed, very small number of instances of censorship that were being, you know, brought to the court's attention. What we have in Missouri v. Biden, because this is the first major federal censorship case of the ch challenging what the federal government is doing um, in the last five, six years, what you have, if we are correct in what we allege, that there is an unconstitutional level of collusion happening between the government and social media companies, and the court rules in our favor, this will this will implicate tens of millions of examples of and instances of censorship. So that just the sheer scope of what we're talking about dwarfs anything else in American judicial history when it comes to censorship and involves more Americans than anything else is, you know, so some guy, sitting on his toilet tweeting about election integrity got censored and he didn't even know it. Right. Um, and so because it's the, it's the first case of this kind, I think of the social media age, um, it, it implicates vastly more people than any other previous censorship case in American history. And I, I can, I was going to say, I can say, Aaron, that if you recall, when we were discussing this, um, the evidence, right, the the discovery that has come out, that, that I am consulting on a case uh, as an expert with another lawsuit that's pretty much coming up against all of the big tech companies. I can't really discuss too much of it, but they have been personally named. We found it. We got through it. We found them in there. And that's what I think is going to be the case with a lot of the, at least the public figures. I'm sure... We should actually probably even look up to see if uh, Dennis uh, or Prager yeah. has been mentioned. In yeah, there. he may. Because I'm he sure that that's probably the case. The discovery documents. And um, it, I think it's too late at this stage to add more plaintiffs. But this could be, of course, the first case of its of its kind as more and more people realize what's happened to them and to their ideas, perhaps to their livelihood because of this regime. You know, hopefully this will be a wedge that opens the floodgates that, you know, that helped to dismantle what's going on. But this, this issue is important for another reason that I think is really important to mention. The Supreme Court has made it clear that First Amendment free speech rights exist not just to protect the rights of the speaker, meaning, you know, you might think, well, 
I don't care that much about social media censorship because I'm not on social media or I only go on social media to read or listen to what other people are saying. I don't post on Twitter. So it probably hasn't affected me. But the court uh, in interpreting the First Amendment has made it clear that the First Amendment free speech rights exist not just for the speaker, but also for the listener. In other words, your rights may have been violated even if you were never personally censored on Twitter, Facebook, or any other social media platform. Because you as an American have a right to, when there's a contentious issue of national importance or of political importance or that may affect your life personally, you're entitled to hear what people have to say about it. You're, you have the right to hear both arguments on both sides of a debate. And you know, in the case of COVID, for example, if you're presented with the false impression of a scientific consensus where no scientific consensus in fact exists because just one half of that debate has been entirely censored, then your rights have been violated too. So it's the right to receive information so that you can make a considered judgment. You can form your own opinions and you can think like a free citizen who's able to consider arguments on both sides of a debate. Uh, so First Amendment free speech uh, rights are important for every American, not just individuals who are out making public arguments or trying to disseminate information widely. I wanted to make another quick point along those lines. Um, I don't know uh, if you've looked into it. So the HB 20 uh, law that's out of Texas, the Fifth Circuit Court, when they looked into it they made an interesting distinction that i think has been overlooked dramatically but just like you said about receiving information it has first amendment implications but they made an interesting distinction that um if you render it down it basically it means this is that they said that if one of these tech companies or, or websites or whatnot considers information pre-publishing so before it is published it is expression there is expression in that because they are making a decision before it's published however they said that if they remove content post publishing so the publisher is somebody else and they remove it that there is no expression in that and therefore because it is only suppression of information it is not first amendment protected so this argument that we keep hearing on the internet about how they have a first amendment right to censor is not true at least at the Fifth Circuit level. It has yet to be uh, fully considered by the Supreme Court. I believe it, it, it is in there now uh, being challenged. But So it, it is another interesting distinction that if, if that holds, censorship is not a First Amendment protected activity then. And that's, that's a huge distinction to make, uh, especially if the Supreme Court holds on it. Dennis, uh, you're getting quiet on us. Are you still there? Oh, yeah, I've been here the whole time. I'm quiet about things that I know others know more about than I do. Well, so here's the thing is, is that, you know, what is your take? I mean, these are interesting points because in this new day and age, and this is something that I'm seeing, especially with with the courts and and the Supreme Court admitted it in Gonzalez versus Google. uh, I believe it was Justice Kagan that said that we're not the nine biggest experts on the Internet, so to speak. And, um, you know, again, it's unfortunate that they didn't hear my case because my attorneys were actually prepared to allow me to go up and speak on my own behalf, which was incredibly rare. 
And that was because one of the things that we're seeing, that I have seen at least in the past five years, is judges are, you know, they're, half of them are like at least 60 plus, if not 70 plus. And in my case, I think the guy was 87, right? They don't understand the internet. I mean, they, they, you know, Gonzalez, they were arguing about how a thumbnail is a recommendation. It's not. It's, it's an aggregation of a, a smaller element of something else. A recommendation is like, here, click this. You'll like this. Uh, you know, feature, that's a recommendation. But these judges don't understand how the internet works. And because I started out as a, you know, a, a social media influencer, well, I don't know, I don't want to call myself an influencer, but I ran a lot of Facebook pages and I think at my peak, I had like 38 million fans. I mean, I had an empire of, of, of fans early on. And then I got into the legal side of it. So I was able to bridge that gap between how this works in the real world, at least in the internet world, and how it applies to the law itself. And I think that what, uh, you know, that's one of the struggles we're also having is, is that trying to get these judges to even understand what we're talking about. You know, when they don't even know how to use email is, is another struggle, especially for the First <laughs> Amendment. Well, you got me to laugh when you said if they know how to use email. That's not a good sign. I mean, it's the truth, though, nowadays. Yeah, that's why it's not a good sign. I, I, I believe you. Yeah, so so unfortunately, you know, uh, go ahead, James. You, I saw you had your hand up real quick. Hey, thanks again. I, I wanted to flesh the idea out with Aaron, if I could, on the agent agency principle, because this is something a lot of people don't, I think, know, right, is that. So when, when you have an undercover, you know, human resource, whatever, and they're, they're official, they're on paper, they, they do some cases for you, and then they stop being a confidential human source. In the future, they still owe people their Fourth Amendment and other constitutional rights. In other words, just because I'm not an official human source, I can't go in somebody's house, violate their Fourth Amendment, then take that evidence to the FBI again and have those people prosecuted on that. So the reason I'm talking about this is because in Missouri v. Biden, what we have at stake here is collusion between the social media and the government. So social media, if you think about it, is the confidential human source. If this case goes correctly, not only will the government be restricted from playing in the game, but the social media companies themselves that were complicit in this will owe you your constitutional rights in perpetuity. Now, I want to see what he thinks about that, because right now it's just yeah. legal theory. Well, I mean, that's a it's a very intriguing suggestion. Um, and I think I would have to noodle on it a little bit more to have too much commentary on it. But one thing I will say at this point is if, if you look at the central legal argument in Missouri v. Biden is uh, whether the government's action constitutes what the law would consider to be state action. So the government's defense is basically, look, we weren't pressuring, we weren't colluding, we were just trying to be helpful, right? And our interests and Twitter's interests just happen to align. And, you know, being the helpful citizens that we are, we, we serve up a, a list of individuals that we think may have violated Twitter's own policies, their own you know, user agreements or terms of service or whatever. And, you know, we we flag those for Twitter 
because, you know, that's what taxpayers want us to do with their tax paying money, I guess. And then we forward that to Twitter and they do what they want with it. And, you know, the fact that they always agree to what we're suggesting only happens because our interests just happen to coincide in that case. So that's their that's their defense. Do you you mind if I inject something here? And I don't want this lost either, because I I hear that argument all the time. and It's coming from the government. And, And this is something that you probably should even convey to your own team, so to speak. The state action which is this whole idea that they can just launder it and say oh well that we just put it out there it was just voluntary that they chose to do it is garbage and the reason being is because the state action which it has not been considered in the courts yet because of course we're still fighting for the courts to even look at it but the state action exists within the statute itself if you read it correctly and here's why the the title of Section 230, right? The protections that they would get, because, of course, that's what ultimately led to all of this mess, is is that they just haven't been held accountable for anything, and therefore the government stepped in, they asked them to do some stuff. But here's the thing. It says protection for Good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive materials, right? And then it says any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to availability materials, and that's just shortening it. Most people haven't parsed that sentence correctly. They believe it's any voluntary action they choose. It's not. It's any action to restrict materials if it's voluntarily undertaken. Because if you think about it, if they're seeking the protection from the government, what did they have to do? What the government asked them to do, which was to block and screen offensive materials in good faith as a good Samaritan. Therefore, as soon as they're seeking that protection, they had to have done the state action. Otherwise, they wouldn't get the protection. Right. It's, it wouldn't yeah. work any other way. Yeah, unless it was state action. There's several ways that state action is implicated in what's been going on. And the court in our case has already acknowledged that. So, um, first of all, regarding coercion, which is one of the ways, coercion and pressure is one of the ways in which the government can be engaged in state action. And we have enough evidence on discovery that that's happening uh, to, I, I think, win the case on that alone. And so I wrote a piece with Janine Yunus, one of the attorneys in our case in the Wall Street Journal uh, called the the White House COVID censorship regime or something like that was the title. Um, And we described some documents that we got between emails between Rob Flaherty, the head of the White House uh, digital communications and a senior executive at Twitter where Flaherty was engaged in a more or less emotionally abusive relationship (laughs) with Twitter, um, you know, berating, uh, telling them basically the president of the United States is very, very unhappy with you. And we go through some of uh, some of that communication in that Wall Street Journal piece. But even if we didn't have that, the court in its most recent decision in our case, indicating that um, that we had standing to bring the case and, you know, denying the government's request basically to throw the case out so that there's there's five different ways the state could be involved in censorship that would be problematic and and the state's exercise of coercive power is only the first uh, the court also mentioned the state providing significant encouragement either overt or covert to private acts action so even just making a suggestion could be problematic when it comes to censorship the third way was uh, a private actor operating as a willful participant 
in joint activity with the state or its agent. So just saying, hey, you know, the two of us are kind of in bed together and we're, we're pulling the cart in the same direction. We're not really arguing about it. I don't have to pressure them because we're both doing the same thing. Even that can be problematic. The fourth way. Plus, they're protected by them. Plus, yeah, they're protected right. by them. So they're, they're giving them the same protection as well as the, the, the influence that's the right. suggestion. Um, the fourth way is um, basically when these private actors are entwined with governmental policies or when the government is entwined in the management and control of the private action, which, you know, I think is clearly manifest in the kind of relationship that was happening with censorship. There would literally be weekly meetings between uh, people at the FBI and pe people at Twitter to go over content that the FBI wanted removed. It was it was a routine on everyone's calendar kind of entwinement. Uh, and then the, the, the last way is when a federal statute has uh, basically immunized private conduct from being challenged. And that's happening in the case of uh, Section 230. And that we have evidence of direct threats to remove Section 230 protection if the social media companies don't comply with the government's request. So basically, we have evidence on all five of those different ways in which the government's action would be on unconstitutional. Uh, the, the direct That's threats and direct coercion being only the first and maybe most egregious example of that. But, um, but the, the government's defense is weak, both because we have evidence that, um, in fact, the thing that they're saying they're not doing, they are doing. But even if, even if what they're saying is true, we have evidence for other different ways that it's still unconstitutional so i think we have a strong case yeah i i believe so as well uh dennis i know has to get going here pretty soon so dennis i wanted to give you sort of the final word um i appreciate you joining us i know you take you know your time is very valuable uh, and i really appreciate you joining us but uh the last word the final word here is yours well it's very kind of you uh so Back to my specialty uh, is the, the macro, the, the large issue here. And first, I want to say about all of you, uh, all good that has ever been achieved has been achieved by outliers. And uh, you are all in that category. I'm in that category. So uh, I, I hope that gives you a sort of little shot of, of, of good feeling and of energy. Uh, the other is that we all have different roles to play. Uh, an all-star team uh, has people playing different positions and they win because they're good at their positions. Uh, 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 my, my specialty is not in the legal arena. My wife's is and yours are. Uh, my specialty is changing minds, and we need both uh, desperately, obviously. And I feel that in America today, there is a race between the left and the rest of us. Uh, the, the tragedy can be summarized in, in a slightly different way than all the tragic things we've already reviewed here, and that is the liberal. The, the liberal 
who is true to liberal convictions uh, is uh, should understand, would understand that the left is his enemy, not conservatives. They don't understand that. And that's the tragedy of our time. Liberals vote for the people who loathe all of their liberal values. They people who believe uh, in racial integration vote for people who believe in racial segregation. Uh, the number of universities with black graduation exercises probably uh, equals or dwarfs the number that had black graduation exercises in the time of Jim Crow. Uh, the, the left actually supports that. They support all black dormitories. Uh, and so uh, the liberal is the tragedy because they they don't vote their values. If they did, we wouldn't have even had this call because we would we would win. We were we would already have won. How you can convince a liberal uh, that uh, the, the his enemy, her enemy, uh, is the left? That's a, a a very difficult thing to do because they've been brainwashed. I, I know this because I'm a Jew from New York and uh, went to Columbia. So you have, I have every. Uh, built-in credential as a Democrat. And as I've often said, uh, sex may no longer be fixed, but party is. When, when you are uh, born uh, a Democrat, uh, it is very, very hard to ever uh, vote differently or to regard the conservative as anything but a loathsome enemy and essentially a neo-Nazi and quasi-fascist. So the, 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 uh, the battle is for the liberal mind. The left cannot be uh, dissuaded. Uh, how we get to the liberal, say, do you understand everything you cherish is threatened by the left? You don't have to love us, uh, but you, we are not your enemy. Uh, we, we are the only protectors of liberal values in America today are conservatives. And, and, you know, it's one of the many ironies in which we live. So I, I just thought that that would be worth noting. And again, uh, I, I just salute you uh, for, for this fight, uh, of which obviously I am part of. And uh, we, we have not lost. That, that's very important to know. Uh, the, they may, they may, uh, realize and i think the new york times which serves as america's pravda today the new york times just had a gigantic piece on how the right has has found this big cause the trans cause they're afraid that this might actually split the left liberal coalition because no liberal believes that a guy who says he's a girl should be allowed to compete against girls in sports. Uh, there are, there are, the left believes that, but liberals don't believe that. There, there is a sense on the left that they may, uh, they may have a losing issue for the first time in, in uh, that and crime theoretically, though Chicago just voted for a defund the police mayor. So it's hard to even know uh, ultimately uh, that uh, it, 
it's hard to, I just got the, my wife just slipped me a note here. So forgive me. Uh, but it is, uh, it's hard to know what the issue might be that can break the liberal left coalition. But that, that is in fact, uh, what our aim has to be. And, uh, who knows? We might meet, we might make uh, some progress. Jason, you're going to Jason, you're going to be on my show tomorrow, correct? Yep, I sure will be. Yeah, well, so and, and I, I, Aaron, I want I want you to come back on, and uh, uh, in fact, any Anytime, any Aaron. of you, you're, you, yeah, okay, well, that's great because uh, people need to know about you. By the way, one final word on on the. Uh, on the price people pay. So I, I had, uh, I've had uh, dialogues in New York, Miami and LA with Alan Dershowitz over the last decade. And he's of course uh, a liberal and still, and he voted for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden, which I'm glad he did because uh, his one vote doesn't matter. And the fact that he could say he did vote for them, you know, gives him some clout. But he has said publicly, I'm not giving away anything private. He has lost, and here is the operative word, all, all his friends. And uh, that, that is how severe uh, it is. And his friends, I don't even know if they're leftists. They may, they may be liberals. But he, he, he has become toxic because... He cares about the Constitution more than he does about a, a hatred of Donald Trump. So uh, people pay steep prices uh, for uh, for being outliers and having courage. If they didn't pay a price, they wouldn't need courage. <laughs> that's that's the way it works. So uh, this is the state of our union at this moment, and. Uh, we need each other uh, for all sorts of reasons, including to know that we're not alone. And we're not alone, by the way. Uh, if you walked with me through an airport and my wife is sitting next to me and she can testify to this, the number of people who come over to me, and I'll end with a, with a, a very sad thing. I should end with a happy one, but it, it's, it's the happy is the number of people who walk over. Oh, oh, this is a very happy one. I did not wear a mask at airports. Uh, for the uh, for uh, most of uh, uh, the lockdown period, and it's it wasn't fun to be the only person, and I'm six foot four, so it's not like I'm invisible. And I would uh, <coughs> excuse me walk through the airport without an airport without a mask, and on four occasions, in four different airports, police walked over to me. And my adrenaline, not an adrenaline rush, would I be arrested? Would I be told to put on a, a mask? In each instance, the police came over and said, Dennis Prager? And I said, yes. Just want you to know we love you. Uh, that, that is something I want you folks to understand. That uh, I, perhaps more than any of you, you know how many of us there are out there so never think that you're alone never think that you're not making progress even though it may appear that way uh, the, uh 
and I, I, I think that's important. The, the, the dark one that I want to just share with you, and I have spoken about this, especially at the time, was uh, when, when Donald Trump was president, people would walk over to me at airports and look around to see if, they, if anybody saw them speaking to me and tell me, just want you to know I, I agree with you and I, and I support the president. And uh, as I said, uh, I spend a lot of time in communist countries and I speak Russian. And uh, I, had, I had the exact experience in America that I had in communist countries of people looking around before they spoke to me. So that's, uh, that's the sobering part. And the other that I told you should be the encouraging part. Well, thank you, Dennis. I, I agree. We, we live in a in a weird world where people are afraid to, to speak up. And, you know, I, you know, I see, you know, not just you, but, you know, I see you as as here as uh, there's a lot of them, even in this room. The people that do stand up that don't wear the masks and so forth. It's tough to do. It's tough to fight back against this. And deal with the ridicule, and and I and I have been in spaces like you said with it with Alan Dershowitz, um, private zooms and so forth, and he really did. He got clobbered in this whole thing, and it's unfortunate that, you know. But at the same time, I I can tell you that at least there is some hope in the in that you make new friends. You know, I I lost some, um, but now I mean some of the people I have now are pretty amazing. You know, you get you get around better people that are. Also, you know, they have more backbone and they're willing to speak up and say things. So, you know, I, I hope this uh, this space was uh, I know this is your first. I hope this was uh, a great experience for you. Um, yeah. And, and I really appreciate wonderful. joining us. Uh, I, I, I really I would like to hug you all. And I, I, I expect that I'll be able Thanks, to. Thanks, Dennis. It was great. It was great to have you oh. on here. We're a real treat. Thank, Thank you, Dennis, you so much. Thanks so much. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks for having us co-host. Yeah, I I really appreciate it. You know, there's, you know, Aaron's efforts, Dennis's efforts, Laura, who is uh, under the unity uh, emblem there. um, You know, she's been working with our organization uh, and (laughs) we haven't put any of them out there. Yeah. I I have, I run the social media freedom foundation, uh, the unity project. We work together. We've done some really good things um and and a lot of you know familiar faces in this group and and so forth that come up and susan i know you didn't come up and speak but you know always love having a conversation with her we have had some really good ones um but again dennis thank you for for taking the time to talk to us tonight and i will see you tomorrow and uh, hope to have you back again thank you it's an honor take care From all of us at The Unity Project, thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that The Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.